Hi everyone, welcome back to a special episode of the Deliberately Better podcast. Today I'll be joined by Alison Haynes. She's a director of Left of Centre Therapies and she's an educational and developmental psychologist. Welcome Alison. Hi Dave and thanks for having me on. How about we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and the work you do? I'm an EdDev psych for been nearly 10 years now, and I currently own and run a clinic in North Brisbane in Caboolture that supports clients who identify as neurodiverse. At the moment, that's mainly autism, but it's slowly branching out to ADHD, specific learning disability, gender and sexual diversity. So anybody feels like they're a little bit left of centre, they don't quite fit. You said recently that you were a subcontractor and then you moved into business. How has that transition been from subcontractor to business owner? Hectic. <laughs> so, so I subcontracted for the first sort of 18 months of my career. Then I was a sole trader, just renting rooms for six years and then left a centre. It's just over a year old now. I landed on my feet running, I think. <laughs> um, we went from three of us just a year ago and we now have 15 on team. So it's been a fast growth, exciting time. We're extremely busy. We have a wait list uh, that's too long for my liking. I've really, really enjoyed it. I've, I've had a really steep learning curve, mm-hmm. but I'm finding this is, this is the position I like to be in where I can encourage others to flourish and, and help them be yeah. the best that they can be. Was it a scary step to make that transition? Absolutely terrifying. Yes. Um, and it was sort of forced. I was given notice in the rooms where I was ha- renting that I had to move out. So it was do more of what do I do and keep burning out or try something new. I'm really glad I made the step, but uh, there was many times where there was panic attacks or close to <laughs> to get through it. Is there any advice that you give for people who are considering taking this step or who would want to step into doing something on their own rather than working for someone else? I think that the the biggest advice is if you think think you might want to do it, do it. Just take that step. But on the flip side, know where your strengths and weaknesses are and bring in people to help with those weaknesses. It's much more efficient to do it that way and it ends up saving money that way. For example, I'm a psychologist. I'm not a business person. So I brought um, Tash, my business coach, on to help me with the business side. I'm hopeless with the funding side. So I have a really good bookkeeper to help me with that. And even though they don't directly earn me money they do in the fact that so much of my time has been saved I can spend it on money making projects for the business if you don't know what you're doing hire somebody who does yeah there's an interesting conversation even in psychology about how much we should be focusing on improving people's weaknesses versus really utilizing their strengths what's your position on that yeah I I think Working in the in the autism field, I'm a big believer in using those strengths to help uh, improve those weaknesses mm-hmm. or, or those challenges. But then also recognizing sometimes that outside support is what is also needed. So it's it's that mix and working out what's right for each individual person. Because sometimes it doesn't matter how much you work; those challenges might be an inherent deficit that will never improve to a workable level. You know, saying okay, so you need a support worker or you need things written down or that can help a lot that way too. In this transition you made with left of center therapies, uh, what values would you say influence the way that you run the clinic? I think values are a hugely important part of how 
we run here. And I feel like that if I can't work to my values, I can't expect my clients to work towards their values either. So our values here are very much around uh, compassion, empathy, honesty, and transparency. We are very much of the mindset that people need to come in here and feel safe. They shouldn't feel like they're going to be judged or that they have to mask or pretend or try and please us or anything like that. They just need to be their authentic real selves. And that's where, if they feel safe enough to do this, that's where we can get real progress. All of my team share these values and we build the, the business so that, that that's the foundation of which we build on. And yes. how do people come to see you or what are the main ways that you end up seeing people? We have um, psychs on site, psychs and provisional psychs on site. So they come into clinic and see us for, you know, a regular psychology session. Uh, we also have... Um, an OT with us and she does a mix of clinic appointments and home-based appointments. And then we have support workers who work in people's homes. They help them with uh, daily living activities, social, social community engagement activities, parenting support and stuff like that. And they've been producing some amazing results because they're, you know, they're in the thick of it and they often do five, six, seven hour shifts. So they get to see what's it all. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we've been getting some really great progress with the support workers. Has yeah. COVID impacted how you've had to practice or how things have been up in Brisbane? Uh, we were shut down for about two months, I think. March, April, yeah, it would have been about two months and we are completely telehealth mm-hmm. for the psychs. The support workers, I actually gave them the freedom to negotiate with their clients whether they would continue or not. About 80% of them did. The telehealth with kids is really interesting. <laughs> it's, uh, and I, I know for myself I shifted a lot to parent support during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an ADHD kid on the other end of the camera. Yeah, yeah that doesn't work very well. <laughs> they find it hard to focus for a full session length? Yes, yeah. And I can't, it's very difficult. I can't sort of direct them to do, you know, movement activities or have sensory breaks or, you know, I can't sort of hand them something. Here, go squeeze this. Because little kids aren't about talk therapy. We're about play-based therapy and playing games and mm-hmm. and doing stuff like that and it was I found a couple of interactive games that we could do over telehealth but it it became quite difficult some autistic kids of course totally different medium meant a transition and they just weren't engaging at all it's just too difficult for them so we're open again now Queensland's very lucky we are pretty much no cases up here a lot different to Melbourne oh yes I really feel for the Melbourne people it would be horrible at the moment because they're locked down really hard Apart from churches and cinemas still being closed, we're sort of back to normal in a lot of ways. How many people or clients would you see that are children versus adults? I think at the moment we run at about 80, 85% kids, but that's shifting. We're seeing more and more adults coming through, getting a lot more inquiries about adult assessments for autism and ADHD. Mm-hmm. Lots of people sort of saying, well, you know, I think it's time. And I think they're recognising that we, uh, that's our area of interest in uh, looking at those not quite so clear assessments and not quite so clear diagnoses. So they know that when they come through us, it'll be a, a dig deep comprehensive assessment. And mm. if there's something there, we'll find it. Uh, if yeah. people uh, are concerned that maybe their children have autism or ADHD or they're concerned for themselves, how can they get help? For adults, it's actually easier mainly because, unfortunately, there's no support. Mm. 
So a lot of the times I'll have uh, conversations with adults and we'll say, what are you actually looking for with this assessment? Is it just self-identification and self-knowledge? Is it for an NDIS application or a DSP application? Is it to look at maybe some medication support? So often we don't have to be um, as structured in the way that we have to present things. On the flip side, it can be more difficult because they've got lots of layers of, of misdiagnoses, being misunderstood, coping strategies, masks that we sort of got to dig through so we can get right down to the, to the story. Children, of course, we have a few assessments that we know are, are gold standard across the industry. We follow gold standard practice for autism diagnoses and that's it's quite an extensive process. We're about six hours in front of the client and then another four, five, six, 20 <laughs> with report writing. It's a, a, a quite extensive process. You mentioned NDIS. Can you just explain a bit about what that is? Yeah, so the NDIS is the is Australia's National Disability Insurance Scheme, and it's a relatively new process. It's only about five years old, I think, but it's, it's replaced all of the hit and miss disability supports. So if you have an identified disability, you should be able to apply to the NDIS and get funding to support you to be able to access community in a way that is equitable to somebody who doesn't have a disability. That's the plan. <laughs> then we have the reality. <laughs> so if you get a good package with NDIS, it absolutely works like that. So the therapies are covered, support workers covered, travel can be covered, some consumables can be covered. The, the challenge with the NDIS is getting approved in the first place. And that's where it becomes tricky because you normally need a diagnosis and that takes a lot of time and money to gain that diagnosis. And yes. if there are people who think that they may have that, could they see you through NDIS or, or would they need to first get that diagnosis and then get approved for NDIS and then to come and see you? Well, we can see people even if they're not on NDIS. Yep. Um, we can see through people through the Medicare mental health care plan scheme or just as a private plan client or, or uh, private health. Uh, unfortunately, there's gaps associated with those fees though. And Medicare doesn't fund assessments with the exception of autism, if they're diagnosed before they're 13 years old. And then there is an item number that gets you a very small rebate off those assessments. It, it turns out to be about 20% of the, of the assessment fee. We have done, we've certainly sat down with some clients who are very financially strapped and really need the support where we will do the dead basics to get them funding. And then once they're funded, we'll use the funding to do the rest of the, the assessments dig a bit deeper into what's going on. It can be hard to get funding then, but if people do get under NDIS, often it can really help with making sure that they're getting all of the care and support that they need. Absolutely, yes, yeah. Where we work in Caboolture, it's a fairly low socioeconomic demographic. So we have a lot of single mums on the pension and there's no way they can afford weekly psychologists with a skilled psychologist in autism and support workers in, in home and, and those sort of things. But under the NDIS, they can then access that. For example, I have a client, we have about 30 hours a week worth of support work in the home, as well as weekly psych, weekly OT, weekly speech. And that child's now progressing a lot better than what they were. And that's mainly just due to the NDIS. It's all covered by NDIS, which is great. So it can make a big yeah. difference in, in their day-to-day -day quality of life and for their parents or family as well? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, I love the system when you get a good package. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. And what about for, say, psychologists who would want to see people through the NDIS? What would be the, the difference between that and Medicare or the benefits of going down that path? Oh, look, it's, it's, 
it's great for us. It's, it's fabulous. So one of the great things is there's no gap to clients. We don't have to worry about do we need to provide a concession rate or can this client afford it? Um, there's also no limit to the number of sessions. So we're not limited to the 10 sessions that Medicare does per calendar year, which again, for people with disability, therapy is always much slower and the progress is slower. So we need more than those 10 sessions. The top rate that you can charge through the NDIS is, is quite attractive. It's up around the APS recommended rate, mm-hmm. which means that for us, we can run a clinic that is fully resourced and has everything that the client needs to actually get the support they do. As you're probably aware, trying to run a clinic on bulk bill, there's no margin there. (laughs) It it just doesn't work. There's actually less reporting obligations if you're not a registered provider. So paperwork-wise, it's actually much easier to run. Mm-hmm. as well so it's a very attractive little funding package to mm-hmm. run under and are there a lot of people that have an approved ndis case where they are approved and funded under that but they don't have people that they can see absolutely so there is a a site where you can put in your postcode and it tells you how many people are currently funded under the ndis and due to that funding how many allied health specialists are needed for that particular area and for example in kabulcha there is enough people on the ndis that we need 25 full-time equivalent psychologists who take on ndis clients in kabulcha there's eight of us Wow. We're not all full-time either. So we probably have, across all of Caboolture, probably eight full-time equivalent sites. And that is just Caboolture. Now, for example, our clinic pulls from Caboolture right through to Ipswich and Toowoomba, right out to Bribey, right out to Kilcoy, you know, and up to the Sunshine Coast and Noosa and beyond. So we're pulling a, a, a huge geographical area anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our clinic is just flooded. You cannot not have full books yeah, if wow. you have NDIS. Yeah, it's it's ridiculously, the demand is 10, 15, 20 times more than there is supply. Huh. Do you think many psychologists yeah. would know about that? I sometimes wonder. The psychs that I talk to, I don't think they do. I think a generalist psych probably sees NDI or disability in terms of a physical disability maybe. Mm-hmm. or acquired brain injury, but they don't see that some of the things are funded like autism, ADHD, you can get funded under psychosocial. So if you have personality disorders, uh, schizophrenia, PTSD, that can be funded under NDIS as well. I'm not sure that psychs or other allied health are actually aware of how much work there is out there to actually, to actually grab hold of. It's, it's amazing. So there's a lot of people out there who need that support that currently aren't getting it. And we've got psychologists sometimes who, you know, they're trying to get by on bog build or they're not able to get enough clients. And there's this big client base there under NDIS. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So we have two Medicare clients in our clinic. Everybody else is NDIS and we've actually closed our waiting list. Um, Just today we've gone, the wait list too long. People are going to be dissatisfied sitting on the wait list. We've actually closed our wait list as well. I hired a provisional psych the other day. She started on Thursday morning. By Thursday afternoon, we closed her books. It happens that fast. (laughs) What do you think is the biggest barrier then for, for psychologists being able to go into this work? Or what do you think, you know, they might think in terms of what holds them back? I think a lot of it is sometimes not understanding or not being confident on taking on disability-based clients. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, they're just people. They're just people like anybody else who wants support. And as psychs, we know how to just be with our client and just Mm -hmm. meet them where they're at. So it's, it's, you don't need extra or special skills to see these people. 
And of course, the other thing is, is to try and navigate the NDIS website and work out exactly what you need to do and what you can, what you have to do as to what you can do and what you don't need to do. It's almost impossible. It's taken me many, many, many hours to navigate that site, work out how to make it work. And we are full-time in this NDIS space. Mm-hmm. So potentially um, people who don't work in that space might just see it and say it's too complicated or maybe I have to register and that's going to take too long or cost too much and that holds absolutely. them back. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like, ah, or they go, oh, we have to register to be an NDIS provider. And then people say, yeah, but that's going to cost you anywhere between five and 15,000 per year to mm-hmm. remain registered. And that's a big knock off your, off your margin. We're not registered uh, as a provider and I don't intend to register as a provider, you don't have to. You can still access more than enough clients to fill your books. It's almost too good to be true in a way. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> it at times. Um, if people don't have to register, but they want to figure out like what they can do to start seeing people under this scheme, where can they go? They can go to my course. <laughs> So what I found was I was getting more and more people private messaging me or contact me and saying, hey, I've got this NDIS client, but I don't know what to do. And I'd run them through the process. And then I was getting more and more and more of these inquiries. I think this is ridiculous. There's obviously a lot of confusion out there about the processes. So I've actually put together a course that covers all those basics to if an NDIS client walks in your door and you're not a registered provider, how to onboard them how to do the invoicing, how to handle the reporting obligations, what you can charge, what you can and can't do with the funding um, and the rules and regulations around that. So everything you need to do to just take on NDIS clients without having to worry about registering as a provider. And it's simple, easy. It's, uh, you know, takes you all of touch over two hours to get through this course. So it's real quick and easy. It actually goes live in uh, August 17th. Where could people go if they want to find out more? There's two ways at the moment. There's a couple of links that I've provided with you that you can, I'm sure, drop on your podcast. You can also go to my website at um, loctherapies.com and there will be a link to education and courses there and you can register through there. Mm -hmm. Also on my uh, Left of Centre Therapies Facebook site, on the banner at the top, you can click a more button, then down the bottom it says sign me up. Mm-hmm. And that's the web, again, the wait list for, for the course. And then once you sign up to the wait list, you'll be sent an email about if you want to sign up early or if you, you know, want to take advantage of that discount straight away. What would be the, the main mental health reasons that people can get funding under NDIS again? For the psychosocial alone, it's that high-end stuff. So it's mm-hmm. the, the schizophrenia, uh, complex PTSD, personality disorders, um, that type of stuff. However, what we often find is there is, uh, as you probably aware, mental health uh, comorbidities that come along with disabilities. Mm-hmm. So, And often people are funded to support those mental health ride-alongs. As I said here, we see mainly people with autism, but our psychs mainly work with anxiety or, you know, uh, anger management or behaviour stuff that goes along. There is lots and lots of flexibility to work within the funding um, once you're seeing in front of a psych. Really, it goes anything from, you know, how to make a friend, how to stop your worries right up to, you know, let's stop these voices talking at me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's uh, the, the whole gamut. What would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to autism? I think there's two main ones. I think people often see autism as less, as a deficit. It's, it's a difference. 
uh, I, I'm autistic myself and because of the strategies I've put in place for myself, you know, I've been able to be a business owner. So it's absolutely possible. Especially when autism started to be identified, it was very much the, the, the rain man, the rocking in the corner, nonverbal, intellectually impaired profile. We know now that it's very much a spectrum disorder. And we also know that females often go under unidentified because we're really good at masking and pretending. So we can appear hugely neurotypical, quite normal, but in our heads we're going, did I put my foot right there? Did I have got the have I got the right expression on my face? Did I say the right thing? I think a lot of people also think that autism is something that is can be cured or fixed. And that's a that's very very dangerous in the autistic community. It, uh, we are we identify as autistic people, so it's part of who we are. It's in every fibre of our being. And to fix our autism is to break us, and we're we're not wanting that at all. And some of the previous therapies that have been used to fix us have actually now come out that they cause PTSD and trauma themselves. So we're you know very careful to say. Look, you're just another person. Let's look at what you're good at. Let's direct you in that direction and watch you shine where, you, where you're good at. That would be why it's so important to have that ongoing funding as well, rather than saying, let's have yes. 10 sessions to try to address this issue. It's, it's no, how can we have an ongoing yes. plan that can support this person to be whatever they want to be? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And especially with children, with each developmental milestone comes with new challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they're little, they might, we might finally get them to do the emotion recognition and the co-regulation, but then they hit puberty and then all of a sudden there's the relationship stuff that comes up. Um, and then they finish high school and all of a sudden just transition to work and trying to make friends and socialise in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of different things that come up in different stages of life that they need that ongoing continuing support for. And do you um, feel like schools at this stage support people with autism much? I really wish I could say yes. I really do but they're not real good at it. (laughs) I think there are some schools that do it really well and there are some teachers within schools who are absolutely brilliant. And I never want to take away from those people because they put their heart and soul to it and they do a fabulous, amazing job. But unfortunately, it's not consistent and it's not frequent enough Mm -hmm. for it to make a real difference. On average, most children with autism will very much struggle through the school system will academically not do as well as they could perform, um, miss out on the supports they need. I think one of the most distressing statistics I came across recently was that of the 7 to 12-year-olds, suicide is their biggest killer. And of those, 80% are autistic. And those people who we know why they've completed suicide is, it's, again, 80% due to the schooling they have. So if you look at those three correlates, you're sitting here going, school is killing our autistic kids. And yeah. that's, you know, it's, it's sounds really dramatic and sounds really horrible, but that's what the stats are saying. That's not good enough. No. If parents are feeling like their, their children are pretty well behaved or, or they're, they're coping well at home, but they're having a lot yeah. of difficulties at school, is there anything that you'd recommend for them? I've got quite a few clients now that homeschool. And there's different ways of homeschooling. There's distance education, homeschooling or unschooling. So it's not one thing. When I started psych, I had this, oh, but if they're homeschool, they're going to miss out on the social and they're going to miss out, which is a very common concern. 
I've yet to have a client that's transitioned from mainstream to homeschool and had a negative experience. Every single client with no exceptions has been better off in homeschool, mm-hmm. which blows me away. <laughs> Absolutely blows me away. Mm-hmm. And parents will often say that even though they're spending more time with their kids it's better quality time and their job actually becomes easier because the children aren't distressed they're not melting down they're not having anxiety so the behavioral concerns which push push from that just aren't happening again and again and again i see these really good outcomes there are rare but a couple of autistic specific autism specific schools but very expensive and huge wait lists in um, brisbane and if, or sydney or melbourne or whereabouts are they looking yeah, so in Queensland, we have Autism Queensland um, and they do a part-time school placement. So you do mm-hmm. two or three days at Autism Queensland, then the other rest of the week at Mainstream. There is also another school here, I can't remember the name at the moment. It's fairly new and it's uh, full-time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's getting a very good name. In New South Wales, there are Aspect schools that cater to autistic kids. And in Melbourne, there is a couple as well, but I'm not sure of the details mm-hmm. um, of those. But okay. yeah very thin on the ground your practice then can you offer some support for schools if if people come and see you yeah so a a lot of our service is collaborating with schools and with other allied health professionals so we can go out to schools and talk to the staff there on how to support the clients we often attend uh, planning meetings to help build a, um, a support plan for the child any child with a verified disability has to have a written support plan in mm-hmm. place at the school so we can help to have one crafted that will actually, is actually workable and will actually support the students. We can certainly uh, help advocate for the support needs within the school. And one day, one day I will open my own school. <laughs> it's, it's, how, it's on the cards. <laughs> so, how would you like that school to run or how would it be different? Lord, it would look completely different. <laughs> Very much a higher, higher staff ratio. So fewer kids in the classroom, smaller classes. Very flexible around those things that I don't think matter. Like, does it matter if it, kids have shoes on or off? in the classroom Mm -hmm. it really doesn't so why am I going to have that battle if they have sensory problems around that you know why am I going to enforce a uniform where there could be huge sensory sensory issues very much more a exploratory play-based learning style I'm much more interested in the education system inspiring kids to be curious about learning Mm -hmm. rather than teaching them things I think if you can inspire a child to be curious about learning and curious about the environment, they will become self-learners. I'm not seeing the education system doing that. We're putting them in as these these bright, curious, just out of toddlerhood because they're so young when they go now and coming out the other end as cynical, robotic kids who just really go, please don't give me another exam, I'm over this. It's not doing our society any justice. Have you seen the um, TED talk by Ken Robinson or Sir Ken Robinson about why schools kill creativity or something like that? I haven't seen the TED talk, but I, I am aware of his, his work. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, again, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost like a production line. Mm-hmm. You know, you put in these beautiful, colourful creatures and at the other end you get little square boxes almost, you know. It's just like, please don't do this. <laughs> no. And, and I wonder if it was just uh, after effect of the Industrial Revolution. So we were teaching kids to know how to work in factories or, or whatever. And now we're at this stage where it's about creating ideas and being more creative in the workspace. And the schools just aren't teaching that. 
No, I think they're they're well, well behind in history. The the way we teach has not changed remarkably in the last 50 years or longer. And so much of the way we used to teach children, as you said, to be factory workers, all that's automated now. We need the, the creativity, we need the lateral thinking, we need the curiosity that machines can't give us. And we need to teach people to be like that because there are some amazing minds that I meet. And the autistic mind particularly has an amazing ability to think laterally and Mm -hmm. to make connections where other people wouldn't see them. And to squash that out of people is, it's tragic. It's a real tragedy. You said that it's a little bit different. Sometimes the presentation in in males versus females or sometimes autism is overlooked in females. What would be maybe some key signs that, that somebody might have an autism diagnosis as females? For females, we often find there's a lot less, and, and I'm very much talking generalities, there's, there's always exceptions, so I will preface with that. But we often find that females have what we call a mask and mimic profile. Boys will tend to go, yep, I'm going to be me, and if you get in my way, you're going to get biffed. They're not all aggressive. <laughs> but Whereas girls will sit back and they'll watch and they'll watch and they'll watch the popular girl and they'll watch and they'll watch and go, that's how I do it, then they copy. And very much like a lot of mental health uh, Boys tend to be more externalising, so mm-hmm. aggression, defiance, uh, non-compliance, whereas females tend to be more internalising, so mm-hmm. eating disorders, self-harm, somatic disorders, and it's the same in the autistic community. One of the core components of autism is, is they often have strong special interests. Male special interests tend to be a little bit odd, um, like light switches or traffic cones or vacuum cleaners. Females tend to be more gender appropriate and age appropriate, but the intensity is Mm -hmm. very different. So a little girl might have a special interest in ponies, but they want to be a pony. They want to live in the stable with the pony. That's Mm -hmm. all they could talk about. They neigh as they, they, you know, gallop around the the, the field. So there's that, that slight difference there. Yeah. And would you see a similar gender difference with ADHD presentations in males or females? Yeah, it's actually, the gender difference is less striking, but we do tend to get more inattentive uh, subtypes in females, which is the away with the fairies can't concentrate type. Um, The boys tend to be more hyperactivity or or combined type, the, you know, the bouncing off the walls. The gap between the genders is smaller in ADHD. We get a lot of girls bouncing and a lot of boys inattentive as well. So again, just so that, uh, you know, the listeners are clear, if they're concerned about their child or they they have questions about themselves and they want to have answers to these, what what would be the first step or or how can they go about trying to, to find answers to those questions? I think probably the first step is a visit to the GP. Mm-hmm. And they can initiate any referrals that, that might help the process. Certainly paediatrician involvement helps. But certainly uh, along with that or even before that, you can contact a, a clinic like ours. And uh, often what I'll do is I'll have these clients that are going, I'm not quite sure. And we'll have that chat about what is it that you're not quite sure of. And then once I get some ideas, we can say, well, these are the options you have to explore that. It's a really scary when you think your child's not normal, for want of a better word. And I certainly found myself when I first having concerns, sitting down with a psychologist and chatting through my concerns with somebody who knows what they're on about and is non-judgmental, can be 
a huge weight lifted off your shoulders. And many times I have clients say, now I feel better about this. Now I know what I need to do next, Mm -hmm. um, where I need to go next. And even though that journey may have a lot of distress along the path, the fact that they now have a path can give them a lot of, you know, a a lot more confidence to to start advocating for their child. Yeah, because they have that sense of direction or where they can go from there. And the same with adults. Normally, again, the first step was probably with a psych at this stage. We find with adults who are autistic or ADHD or gender questioning have had a very long history of mental health challenges because they've always felt like they've not quite fit. So having a chat with a psych and say, you know, I think it's something more than anxiety here. What's going on? And, you know, we can start to explore that a bit more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There are more strategies available for ADHD than just taking medication? Yes, absolutely. ADHD is, is mainly an executive function deficit. And mm-hmm. as, as a lot of people know, executive function is what I say to kids, it's the boss of your brain. You know, it's, it's the things that keeps things in control. Mm-hmm. So with ADHD, the executive function just, just isn't there as, as much. They run at about anywhere from 50 to 80%. <laughs> Of, of optimal. What we do with kids is we try and take the load off the executive function in any way we can. Don't remember that appointment next week, write it down and set yourself a reminder. Mm-hmm. Then your executive function doesn't have to worry about it. So we do a lot of that scaffolding to help. So when the executive function has to work, it's got more of it to use and it can work a little bit more effectively. I've just recently been diagnosed ADHD myself and I, I am on medication, on stimulant medication. Mm-hmm. And it has really made me realise the strategies that I've used so far to get where I am now. And the absolute freedom of having executive function that works. <laughs> okay. And how good that feels now. But, you know, I, I managed intimate, well into my 40s before I was identified. You know, it's certainly possible. And does that reassure people knowing that you've been through maybe some similar struggles or you can understand what it's like for them? Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those psychologists that didn't listen to the don't self-disclose lecture. <laughs> so especially parents, like I say, look, I'm a mum of two kids with autism and ADHD. And they go, oh, so you know what we're going through. Mm-hmm. You know, when we say meltdown, we don't need a little tantrum in the supermarket. We need a full-on holes in the walls type stuff. And I go, yep, yep, I've been there. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And having that neurodiverse brain myself, I can understand sometimes more where my clients are coming from and how they're thinking. I really hope that this talk today, you know, does highlight a few things for people. Firstly, that, you know, help is available. If you're not sure what's going on or if you think that you may have autism or ADHD or that your children might. Secondly, that help is available through the NDIS. And if you can do that, then hopefully that's going to be a more comprehensive support that you're getting. For the psychologists that are listening or other health professionals, you don't necessarily need to register through NDIS to help them out. And there is a big demand there. So hopefully the more health professionals we can get into it, the more that we can make sure that people that are getting that funding through NDIS get the support that they need. Absolutely. Spot on. Yes. Any other takeaway messages or final points that you'd like to make? I think you've, you've got it all, but yeah, but, but don't be afraid to reach out and ask the questions mm-hmm. um, and don't be afraid to, to hunt around for the right person as well. It is a bit of a specialised field and it's, I think it's very important to get a good fit. Autistic people very much know when you're not genuine. Mm-hmm. So you need to find a therapist who's, who genuinely thinks well of you and genuinely wants to help. Yeah. That's when you start to get the progress, but yeah. Just one last time, where can people go to get in touch with you or the clinic? 
the best point of call is probably go to our website at lotherapies.com no you on the end just.com or i have a facebook page as well you can send through a message me through either of those and admin can get back to you and, and talk you through all the options that we have thank you so much so, for coming on today no worries thank you so much for having me it's been great Thank you.